okay, people are entitled to their perceptions of virtually anything. Then the question becomes is, why does your opinion of the thing mean that you get to develop law, policy, and mm -hmm. discourse around it? In, in the sense that it would then impact that person's or that thing's life experience existence, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what I kept coming back to is this notion that people are uncomfortable broadly, generally, with sex work because they think it's unsafe and there's this prevalent frame that they are selling their body, right? One of the things mm -hmm. I push back on in the book is that they don't, you know, sell their body, particularly those that engage in direct forms of sex work or direct services. They sell a service. Welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea. Today on the podcast, I'm sitting down with an author, scholar, faculty member, and also a colleague and friend from ACPA, Dr. TJ Stewart. We're talking about his new book, Sex Work on Campus, which happened to be the Association for the Study of Higher Education's Outstanding Book of the Year. I got to hear TJ talk about his book at ASH last month, and I cannot wait to get into this topic, this complex, nuanced, and before now, I think, absent conversation today on the podcast. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you find these conversations, make a contribution to the field, and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com, on YouTube, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. This episode would not be possible without the support of our new sponsor, Rutledge, Taylor and Francis, publishers, happens to be the same publisher of this book, hooray, and you can view their complete catalog of authoritative education titles at www.rotledge.com slash education. As I mentioned, my name is Heather Shea. Uh, my pronouns are she and her, and I am broadcasting from the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi peoples, otherwise known as East Lansing, Michigan, home of Michigan State University, where I work in our Gender Equity Center. Uh, so let's get to the conversation. TJ, thank you so much for being here today. Welcome back to Student Affairs thank Now. You. you were on a previous conversation about labor relations, which I think That's will right. have a like, dovetail to the today's conversation oh, yeah. a little bit. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So Labor's you are currently everywhere. assistant professor of higher ed and student affairs at Iowa State University. Um, I, as I, as I said, as we were prepping today, I just finished reading your book on my Kindle. I brought it today as a little visual aid, um, <laughs> downloaded from for free. So yes. thank you to that as well. Um, but I'd love to just begin with a bit of your journey um, that yeah. brought you to your current role and then how you're entering the conversation today. Yeah, so thanks so much for that, Heather. I'm so glad to be back to talk about the book um, and just to engage one more time. Um, my pronouns are he and him. Um, as mentioned, I'm assistant professor at Iowa State University um, in central Iowa on the traditional ancestral homelands of the Iowa, Iowa, Meskwaki, and Sauk nations. Um, so I live, work, and play here in central Iowa, and it is wonderful. Um, so yeah, I am in my fifth year as a faculty member at Iowa State University, which I don't know where the time has gone. But um, prior to that, I had spent my time as a student affairs professional. So I was a practitioner, I was an administrator, and I often tell people that I am a, um, I'm a practitioner at heart, even though I'm a, a scholar, I'm a faculty member now. Um, I so love and think fondly on my time um, working as a student affairs professional and um, have always been involved in equity and justice related work. So um, I was an assistant director of a multicultural center um, at Ohio State University. I also worked with our bias assessment and response team. For a time, I was a program manager in the office of the vice president for student life. I did some work with college student activism, working as a liaison between the division and the students and the mobilizers and organizers on campus. Um, and uh, then eventually took you know, myself to the University of Georgia where I did my doctoral work um, and did work in uh, 
housing and residence life, particularly doing assessment and evaluation work. And so, you know, what's interesting and sort of as I think about entering this conversation is, you know, this idea of college students and their engagement in sex work or erotic labor has always been a part of my personal sort of subconscious is what I mean by that is, you know, you've seen movies, uh, you hear students have conversation. I mean, I talk in the book about song lyrics, like it's all around us this notion that maybe possibly students who are in college or who'd like to be in college are doing this type of work either to pay for college or to maintain a particular lifestyle. I mean, any number of things um, or to just survive their day-to-day -day needs. And so, um, when I started my work as a scholar, because I had been in equity and justice spaces, I felt like there was nothing you could tell me about some of these things. And, and I'm sure you've probably had a similar experience. Heather, of course, we're always learning, but I was an assistant director of a multicultural center. So there was nothing you could tell me about race or gender um, or issues around class or sexuality um, or issues of capital, like run the gamut. And then I start thinking about something like sex work and never in a class as a graduate student, never in a professional development conversation. It's just not in the consciousness. And so then I'm like, well, what else is not on my mind? Or if it's not on my mind as someone who's in this work, it's certainly not in the broad consciousness in student affairs and in higher education. So um, it, that's why it sort of always stuck, stuck with me. It's like, what do we think about people, populations that are in the margins of the margins, mm. right? Um, or on the margins of marginality. And that is how I kind of think about and situate sex workers. And so that was the impetus for a lot of my research that, and there was a lot of activism around two pieces of federal legislation called SESTA and FOSTA, which I talk about in the book as okay. well, really is what um, made me aware of what was going on. And so then I'm like, well, let's stop leaving it in the subconscious mm -hmm. and let's ask the question and let's have the conversation and out of that came uh, sex work on campus um, as a way to think about and to, you know, um, invite people to engage in this dialogue with me. So it was originally your dissertation research. Correct. And then as a new faculty member, you decided to write a book. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, the students decided for me. Yeah, the, the students, students decided. Okay, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Tell a, that yeah. story. How did you, how did you come sure. to write this book and why... Well, you talked a little bit about the why the topic now, but yeah. I'd love to hear more. Well, and this kind of connects to some of what, you know, we've talked about, Heather, um, offline is this notion of how I approached the research mm -hmm. as a researcher. And I use the language in the book, collaborator, quite intentionally yeah. when I'm referring to the students in the study, um, because it didn't feel good to me even with, you know, some methodologies in which there's this assumption around you're supposed to really be engaged with the community at the center of the inquiry. And, but it still felt like once that was done, it was like, thank you so much for your stories and your time. And now I'm going to go forth and do what I want with this. That didn't feel good to me. And so I started trying to dream and imagine if I were on the other side, if I were the person or an experience that I had was at the center of a project, what would make me feel like that I was sharing in doing this thing. And so I started to brainstorm some things that I wanted to try out. Now, later I published a piece called I Don't Feel Studied where I offer a new framework for doing this. But at the time there was no framework. I'm just kind of like flying the plane and building it, figuring out, trying some things <laughs> out. And one of the things that I suggest researchers do is to win a study um, in terms of data collection is complete to just simply ask them, where do you want your stories to go? So mm. I'm a qualitative researcher, a narrative inquirer. Where do you want your stories to go? How do you want people to hear them? Like, where do you think they would be most useful? And I explained to them all the options. I said, we could do public scholarship only. We could write blogs, op-eds. We could try to get something in a paper. I don't know, maybe we could do the New York Times. I mean, I was throwing everything. Like, what can we do together? Uh, then I said, okay, or we could do articles. Here's that process. Here's how long it takes. It's a behind a paywall. So you can think through what that means to you. We could do a book. Here's how that might look. Here's how that process might go. So, you know, and I just went through all the options. What What is your ask of me as seven students in this project? And they resoundingly were like, we want a book. <laughs> and then I'm like, 
shoot, because I'm a new faculty member. Uh, you know, one of the things they tell you is like, you know, pre-tenure, you really shouldn't be writing books. And here I was in my first year, still with the voices of these students in my head, like, we want a book, we want a book. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I need to write the book. And so um, I did offer to to allow them to join me as co-authors. Mm. Um, that was also important to me uh, in making them true collaborators. Once they realized that it's not a lucrative <laughs> process and it's also very <laughs> laborious. They're like, no, thanks. You can write the book. We want a book, but we'll let you write it. And I was like, <laughs> okay, fine. I will write the book. And so um, so it was really a mandate. It was them saying we want it because we think that that's more accessible. Now, I took it a step further. They didn't ask this yeah. of me and there was no guarantee I could do it. But I took it a step further to say, not only am I going to do a book, but I'm going to make sure that it's open access. I'm going to make sure yeah. that anybody wants to read it, can read it. And really specifically, if there are sex workers who are also college students, I didn't want them to have to pay a dime mm -hmm. to engage a resource that was about their life and their experience. They mm -hmm. should just have access to that. And so um, I was really happy I was able to do that for the students and just for the greater good. And so that was the why. Um, but you know, but I, but that's what made them collaborators. That's one example. There are others, but I felt like you, we got to ask them how they want their work to move forward. I don't think we get to make that decision by ourselves. So that was right. why I wrote the book. You you go into such detail about their stories. And I know that also was a collaborative process, right? Yeah. Where you work mm -hmm. together. To talk to me a little bit, because I think you mentioned this in this process, like how did you also make sure that they were okay and safe and not, I mean, to the extent that we can help mitigate any risk. Um, yeah. I feel like that would weigh on me for sure. Yeah, so one of the things I was really interested in is I wanted the students to know all about me. I wanted to be mm -hmm. very exposed long before they even thought about revealing themselves to me. Mm -hmm. And so my approach was, and I remember some folks in my program were like, TJ, you're so vain. Why do you have your picture on your dissertation flyer? I'm like, there is a strategic purpose, but I wanted them yeah. to see me. I wanted them to see, I was doing a study about yeah. college students engaged in sex work and I'm putting my face on it because I'm not ashamed of this work. I'm not ashamed of you. I'm not ashamed of uh, the labor form that you, you're engaging here, that I'm standing proudly next to you as much as I can in this work, right? And then, you know, we had two two-hour interviews. So that was just the conversation. Right. And even a stranger, I mean, I don't know about you, Heather, but after I talked to someone for four hours, they're much less of a stranger than they were before. Right. <laughs> and so after that, right, and they were like two two hour interviews, they were about a week apart. Um, you know, then we sat down to co-write these memoirs of either their first time engaging in sex work or a memorable time. And the reason why I offered to co-write them is because I had some experience with the creative nonfiction form, mm -hmm. but also I didn't want to ask them for more labor. Um, and mm -hmm. so there was the flyer they got they were able to visit my website they were able to read blogs they were able to find anything that I could find to throw up throw up on there and then they decided I want to talk to this person okay right I got a okay. sense of who they are I got a you know and so it, you know over the course of the of the interviews and you know we didn't get into the more intimate parts of their experiences until we've already had that four hours together which as you know as a researcher is a lot of time with one um uh, person in a study. Typically, it's like, oh, I've interviewed one person for 45 minutes to an hour, and then I moved on. It's like, no, I had four hours of time with each of them. And then we got together to figure out how do we write these stories. And so, you know, I asked them to only go as far as they felt comfortable. Mm -hmm. I told them they can stop and at any time and we can pull back. Um, you know, in, in one of the stories, I don't know if I'm not, you know, suggesting you remember all of them, but in Tiana's story, for example, Fight Night, right, where she went to Las oh, Vegas yes. during yes. her first time engaging in sex work during the Mayweather and Pacquiao fight, she talks about her experience. And there's that scene where she's like walking down the long corridor to the room. And then I asked her, was it a long walk? And she says, it always is. And <laughs> And then we just kind of fast forward to the next morning. So it wasn't really this process where we're getting into all this like, you know, intimate detail. Um, and I remember asking the students at the end of the study, what was this like for you? Here's what I hoped to achieve. And, and they were like, no, I had no, I was under no illusion that this would be some like, you know, salacious, like, you know, messy kind of process, but that, I, you know, we could tell you were really trying to be thoughtful. So, you know, because it wasn't about the work itself, it's really about them 
as yeah. they do that work, right? And that's what I try to, to try to kind of put some boundaries around it. But I mean, as you can see, what we got are these really, I mean, the stories are what maybe a thousand or so words each. I think there's maybe seven to 10,000 for seven, for seven stories, but you get these really vivid pictures of these experiences that these students are having. And so it was a really beautiful um, process. And I tried to model care. And I think what made that possible is that they were truly collaborators, like not right. just in name, but in praxis. And so because they had control in the process with me, uh, it was very different than this sort of extractive kind of transactional engagement. So the article that I wrote called I Don't Feel Studied is because one of the you know collaborators said, I don't feel studied in this moment. Oftentimes when I do research, it's this really gross feeling but we've had an exchange, we've shared mm -hmm. with each other and that made the difference for her. So yeah, so it's just, um, you know, and I think that allowed them to be vulnerable and to go places that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise in different contexts. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I know that you were also really um, direct in the book about identities and shared identities and centering, Oh yes. you know, particularly, you know, identities in which you you had in common and so I think yeah. you know the way that race and queerness shows up um, also in the book is really I think Absolutely. that's the other kind of important thing how did you find students I mean I'm because yeah. again like there's this hidden it's missing from the literature but I'd say largely missing from our conversations about student experience how did you find yeah. students so we did a we did a open call and one okay. of the things that I knew a national call. One of the things that I knew was that we got to do it differently. This is a, a sensitive topic. Yeah. Confidentiality and privacy are going to be the, of the utmost importance. But then also, right, I'm talking not only to college students who are engaged in erotic labor, but also those with racially minoritized and sexually minoritized yeah. identities, right? Yeah. So then I'm like, okay, a, a, you know, engaging in this study for a chance at $25 to Amazon did not feel good to me. What <laughs> mm. felt great to me was, hey, if you think that this is a good fit for you in terms of participating in this study uh, as a collaborator, how about $25 an hour of your mm -hmm. time? Mm -hmm. And so then that's different. Yeah. I think it shows a commitment that I have to ethical labor, yeah. right? Yes. Ethical uh, compensation for time. Um, in a, in a type of work where that is important, right? And so those were the types of things I, I, I were having. And so I remember I talked to one of the students to say, you know, what are, why did, why this study, right? And so one of them was like, I've seen calls for studies like this before and I would never have dreamed. But when I saw yours, first I saw you, right? Mm -hmm. So to your point about identity, I Picture. see this, you know, this fat body black man, yeah. let me see more about him, what's going on here. And then, you were looking for sex workers with these identities. Yeah. So, oh, you're talking about me. So often I feel like I have to see myself in whiteness or there's an assumption mm -hmm. of whiteness as default. But no, you made clear. I'm interested in students who are doing this work and who have these identities and then it's paid. So she kind of was like scaffolding, like this was the study I needed to be in. Like it, this was study. This was a study that was made for me. And so um, what I can tell you, and I don't know if I've written this, I, it might've been in the epilogue, but 24 hours after my call went out, I think there, I, there were like 30, 27 yeah. to 30 people who had signed up and were interested. My final study only had seven students. And the reason why is because I wanted to practice a really good ethic of consent. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that is because of the topic, now, if I, let's say I was doing a, a, a study on like um, study habits of undergraduate mm -hmm. students, <laughs> I might nag them. Hey, you signed up. You sure you want to do this? Hey, I haven't heard from you. Hey, do you want to? But because of what I'm doing, it felt yeah. powerful to me to say, I will reach out to them no more than twice without a reach mm -hmm. back, because I don't think someone has to say, I don't want to be in your study for right. us to know they don't want to be in our study. Yes. And so- yes. There's a possibility, Heather, that had I done more follow-up, I may have had more. But I also think that for the ones that really wanted to be in it, those seven, they reached back quickly, yeah. strongly, fiercely, right? And so the other thing is because it was dissertation research, I was just a team of one. So some of the mm -hmm. folks, it took me a minute to get to. So maybe if I had a team. But what it yeah. shows that in 24 hours, 30 people signed up for this topic means people were chomping at the bit to tell their story. 
Yeah. They were chomping at the bit to talk to someone that even on the surface level, right, they didn't really know what it was going to be like until they did it. They didn't really know if I would be a, um, a safe space for all of the challenge of that phrase until they were in it. But something about it felt like if there was ever going to be a chance, it was this. And so that meant a lot to me. And it was something I really sat with. Like that in, in itself was a finding that in that very quick time frame, there were 30 people who were ready. When when we were doing the proposal, when I was doing the proposal, my committee was like, well, prepare your project so that if you only talk to one student, <laughs> that you're able to, to move forward. And so we were like, well, let's just get one. So yeah. seven, you know, exceeded any dream Amazing. I had of what this project could be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the amount of data and also the time intensity of it, and then the length of time that you're engaged with the collaborators, right? Not just through the dissertation, but through this process. Yeah, um, yeah, because yeah. four of them, four of the seven or three of the seven endorsed the book. So that's another other fun fact. When people look at the endorsements of yeah. my book at the top, three of them were students in the study. And so that was my intentional way of saying no offense to my colleagues. I love them. They're great in the field. I didn't want the mm -hmm. big deal name saying, oh, this mm -hmm. is a great book. I wanted the students who were in the study to say, I'm in this and you need to read it. Yes. Right. That yes. was what I wanted. And um, and so I didn't reach out to all seven. There were, uh, we we negotiated in the study who wanted to continue to stay in touch with me mm -hmm. and who wanted to have that break just for their confidentiality and privacy. Mm -hmm. But for the ones that were fine to stay in contact, those were the ones I asked and they are all like yeah and they read the book and then they offer their endorsement wow wow yeah. that's awesome I also really liked and this isn't even on my question list but the way that you in your forward and your afterward centered uh -huh. um sex workers as well yeah. right and scholars yeah. in this space that was that was awesome can you say a little bit more about how you identified how you found those folks sure yeah so there was a um two folks who wrote the forward and afterward who go by the names of Thought Scholar and Raquel Savage, respect, respectively. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing the study with the students, I was really curious in terms of who was impacting or informing their understanding of erotic labor, um, who were people that they felt like were um, offering wisdom and or ways to uh, keep themselves safe. And, and just who were they Right, because my suspicion wasn't that they just kind of woke up one day and said, you know, I'm going to do sex work and mm -hmm. go try it out. But then maybe there was a period of research and connection. Maybe there was mentorship. I didn't know. I didn't want to make assumptions, but I asked yeah. them. And one of and both of these names came up. Uh, Raquel Savage, overwhelmingly, who wrote the afterword mm -hmm. of the text, was someone that they felt like that they learned from, that was a good advocate for them as, um, you know, a woman of color in the work. And then what I appreciated about Thought Scholar, who wrote the foreword, is that there was a lot of writing, theoretical and conceptual writing around sex work and erotic labor that she was doing that was really instructive to me. Like, I mean, she was also published in the Columbia Law Review. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of in your work, um, Heather, the book, We Too. So you remember the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. but there was the yeah, book yeah. We Too that talked about the essays of uh, issues around sort of sexual violence um, and some other context she's published there. And so she was advancing a lot of frameworks that specifically centered sex workers with minoritized identities and that was really the point because there's voluminous work out there about sex work broadly mm -hmm. a lot less about higher ed specifically but then what is available is typically about you know white women in pornography and so what she has, was trying to do is complicate a lot, of, a lot of the prevalent discourses around what are the experiences of sex workers with these other identity experiences and so one of the pieces in an acpa journal jcsd it's called what I have to do for a check, which dis which delineates these differences between what these sex workers felt like that they needed to do um, for a certain type of or level of money or compensation versus what they perceive uh, other sex workers having to do. And what I was really trying to offer is advancing that conversation to say, despite all of the concerns, objections, fears around sex work, even intra right, this labor form, there's a lot of difference and there's a lot of inequity and there's a mm -hmm. lot of ways that they're traversing the landscape differently. So um, so I chose those two folks because they were instructed to these students. So it was also a full circle moment for them. Mm -hmm. And so I tell them, you know, tell them this when I'm writing, I'm like, I, I reached out to you. I don't know if you have any interest, happy to compensate you to contribute to the books, but I invited you because, and so then they got to read the text and then they're like, they don't know these students, but they know that they've impacted these students and then they got to contribute in the text. So it really is this sort of, you know, beautiful kind of 
connection sharing full circle of life kind of moment having all these voices in one space and having them having impacted each other in ways they didn't even you know know or were aware of yeah I loved I loved both of those pieces as kind of on the bookends right and I think that they just really um added a lot to the overarching overarching message yeah um especially that last piece yeah yeah Yeah. especially the last piece um the funny part was um when she's confronted in the class and then the students yes like, hey, yes <laughs> like some because people see me you know they see yeah. me, they know me and given the educational context that's why yes. i like that one specifically she talked about you know she had an undergraduate degree she got an advanced degree was in counseling and therapy in classes and hearing people talk about how do you help you know uh, prostitutes right language I don't use but right mm-hmm. she's really and so I thought it was a really good example as folks in education as folks trying to support students what her experience was like going through that so it was very meta in that way and that I really love the afterword for that reason yeah I want to get to yeah. that um idea of invisibilized in a labor in a moment but I want to talk about yeah. labor more because yeah. I think one of the things that you complicate in the book is the legitimacy of various forms of labor if we have a yep. problem with sex work, you know, or erotic labor, you know, we really maybe need to unpack what the origins of that is. And then yeah. also, what does that mean for for labor itself? And so yeah. can you say more about that? You say it way more eloquently. Yeah. So one of the things that I was really trying to do in the book was to think through where I tried to get it, get out of myself, right? And mm-hmm. get into maybe the the public consciousness Mm -hmm. the psyche of the average person like where does discomfort around this issue come from is what I was Mm -hmm. trying to figure out yeah and you know there's this emotional aspect there's this logical aspect but I'm like okay what is it and what kept coming up for me and then I think was substantiated a lot in the literature is this idea that people think that it is um maybe immoral Mm -hmm. right like it's bad Mm-hmm. And I, I took a step back to say, okay, people are entitled to their perceptions of virtually anything. Then the question becomes is, why does your opinion of the thing mean that you get to develop law, policy, and mm-hmm. discourse around it? In, in the sense that it would then impact that person's or that thing's life experience existence, right? Mm-hmm. And so what I kept coming back to is this notion that people are uncomfortable broadly, generally, with sex work because they think it's unsafe. And there's this prevalent frame that they are selling their body, right? One of the things mm-hmm. I push back on in the book is that they don't you know, sell their body, particularly those that engage in direct forms of mm-hmm. sex work or direct services. They sell a service, mm-hmm. Okay. Then for those, so let's think about someone who may, let's say they're a dancer in an adult club, right? They're really a performer. You may not like the performance. You may think that the way in which they perform, the way they present their performance is wrong or bad. But again, that's a personal issue kind of musing. Um, And so what it boiled down to is people think that there are good types of work and bad types of work. That's really what it is. Like, and so where the where I wanted to go, and part of this came from uh, Heather very early on in my in my process of doing this work, long before this book was even thought about. Right, I might have been actually uh, actively, excuse me, dissertating. Yeah, and someone was like, "Okay, TJ, let's say we concede all these things. Surely you have some critique about it, right? Because they're wanting to get at the safety issue. They're wanting to get at mm. is exploitation possible? Yep, there." There are ways in which it may or may not be safe. There are ways in which people can be exploited. There, are, and so they're wanting me. They're wanting to get me to say, like, well, surely you have some critique, right? And so my response was to to these folks who are asking these questions is, you know, here's what I will give you. Here's my olive branch. Um, speaking of, of moral references, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, sex work is problematic insofar as it is labor under capitalism. Yes. Mm. Right? What Mm. that means is, is that we live in society where we have to, Heather, you and I and everyone else, work to have housing, food, and healthcare, Mm -hmm. which I think 
we should all be entitled to by virtue of the fact we were born on this rock flying through space, right? But that's not the world we live in. So what my critique is, is that if we want to trouble the ways in which people have to survive full stop, I'm for that. I'm not for saying the way you choose to survive the system we're in is better or worse than the way you choose it because then it legitimizes the system. Right. So if we want to have a broader conversation around work and in the the case of students, are they working too much? Are there types of work they should or should not be doing? Then we have to have a broader conversation around work and the connection to student affairs and higher ed, right? If we assume that people are doing it to pay for college. And in my study, I found that's only half true. We have to Mm -hmm. complicate that. Then we have to worry about the cost of college, not just because there are people who are engaged in sex work, but because there are also people door dashing and Ubering. And if we care about the ways in which students work or not, right, then we have to focus on the work, not this work is fine and that work is not, right? And so what I was trying to do is really getting us to think more deeply and critically and in in a conceptual space of what really is the issue, right? Um, We all use our bodies in different ways. LeBron James, the basketball player, uh, there are logging workers who spend all day cutting down trees, which by the way, per capita in terms of deaths each year is one of the most dangerous jobs, but there's not Mm. legislation against logging. There are regulations. There's not legislation against it as a job choice. Right. And so I, I want us to just like be honest around what's actually happening. And what I'm saying is, We are all in a system trying to make meaning, trying to survive. And we have to survive it differently. Our contexts are different. Mm -hmm. Where we start, right? Where we end is different, but we're all in it. And so what I'm saying is until we adjust the system where work is not necessary, Mm -hmm. then we don't get to dictate or to judge or decide which types of work are better, best, et cetera, right? Um, Right. I think I I mentioned to you offline. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, just, I, I mentioned that offline about like, you know, why is it the Judge Act, why is it illegal to sell something that it's legal to give away for free? It just doesn't make sense. Yeah, make say sense. that line one more time because I think that context is so interesting. Yeah, so there was a court case in the Ninth Circuit, I want to say, and basically there was this organization bringing a constitutional case against the illegality of sex work. So they were trying to say, that saying that sex work is illegal is unconstitutional was the position of mm-hmm. the plaintiff. Mm-hmm. And so the state attorney was representing the state, I want to say of California, don't quote me on that. But anyway, the judge asked the state attorney, why is it illegal to sell something that it is legal to give away for free? And I rewinded the YouTube video and I I wanted to listen and I would hear, why is it illegal to sell something that it's legal to give away for free it's like why would it be illegal to sell water if it was legal to give water away for free if i had a well in my yard right it's the same thing why is it illegal to sell you an apple but i could give you an apple for free right and so it's that same kind of notion and the response was well because the legislature says it is yeah and then what question what is it about Yeah, morality, right? I mean, then it's like, okay, what's influencing our legislative actions? And yeah. Yep, yep. So the other thing that related to labor that I thought was really interesting and illuminating was the amount of work, you know, students had to to engage in to get the amount of money they needed versus any other job, right? Yes. Target or whatnot. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And that that came from the, some of the literature. I mean, even pre my project, I mean, I think what I found in my study uh, supported and further substantiated what a lot of scholars have found it that, you know, people say, what is the motivation? Why do students mm. do this? And I'm like, in a word, money, <laughs> like it's money, yeah. but it's not yeah. just money. It is, it is the amount of money that they can make relative to the time it takes them to make it. So it's not just, oh, they're doing it to make money. So going back to the previous conversation I was just having with you, it's if I get to do less work, which is why some people think about sex work as anti-work, Heather, 
which is fascinating. We're, we're going to talk <laughs> about that in the book. So because I can do this work and make this much money in this much time, I'm actually, it's a form of resistance to do this work because I'm saying yeah. work is stupid. So if I got to yeah. do it, I want to get the biggest bang for my buck, right? Yeah. And so I think that that is something to consider. It's not just that they can make money, the amount of time they spend doing it relative to what they make. And so there was a student, Kimmy, to your point around Target, mm -hmm. that she yeah. was talking about why she didn't tell people that she was on campus, that she was engaged in sex work. And she said, you know, one of the things I'm worried about is if I told these staff members or administrators I'm doing this, they would want to save me. Like, oh no, we got to help you. And she's like, I really would have preferred someone save me from working at Target, which is something no one would have ever done. If, if she would have said, oh my God, I'm working at Target and I'm stocking these shelves or I'm doing online orders and I'm just like miserable, no one would say, oh my God, we got to find you a new job. They would say, oh, yeah. suck it up. That's life. Yeah. That's just a job. Right. Yep. And so, you know, it's one of those things and it connects to, I wasn't thinking about Dr. Chris Linder, who we're currently mm -hmm. working on a piece around sex work and sex violence, but she talks about, and we talk about in this also, it gets complicated. And I talk about it in the book some, that the fear that sex workers have, including students and in sharing is that they are afraid that they can't say that they do this work and then complain about it because then it's also used as evidence of why they shouldn't do it. Mm. And what they say overwhelmingly is like, that's unfair. Heather, you and I complain about our jobs. Complain about our jobs maybe, all the time, right? Maybe not publicly, but we're yeah. like, oh my God, here's this thing at work. <laughs> but no big? one says, well, you know what, Heather, you don't need to be a director in the center. You yeah. don't need to be in higher ed, right? But yeah. that's what we do. And that's so that's do. where I tried to hold the complexity and the nuance of the topic is I create a space and in the text, we talk about it. Here are the challenges. Here are the things I didn't like about the work. And mm -hmm. I still rather do it over working at Target. So what do yeah. we do with that yeah. as folks that are trying to support students? And when we think about agency and when we think about choice, when we think about, right, we got to create space for that. And I don't know that we always do that for sex workers generally, but certainly not students for that level. Yeah. And I think, I think part of that, and I'm going to step back for a moment because I think sure. that whole, like, we need to save them from the work is also rooted in a confusion between what is sex work and what is sex trafficking yes. and the ways yes, that yes, those yes. things get conflated. Right. And then yep. there's this group of people out there that is like, okay, we have to make sure that there's, you know, and that then there's a whole kind of interesting yeah. divide there between yeah. those who are empowered and have agency and those who are victims and need. Yeah. saving. So yep. you say more yeah. a little bit about that difference. Yeah. So it's interesting because I think, you know, the, it took me a while to get to the bottom of it. And there's some scholars who are brilliant and, and, and eloquent who I think got there quick, quicker and more concisely, but th th this notion that um, the conflation is quite, is quite intentional. Mm -hmm. So going back yeah. to the beginning, there were two pieces of legislation. It was the SESTA and FOSTA, which were acronyms. SESTA was for the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act. And FOSTA was the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. SESTA and FOSTA. There were two pieces of federal legislation. And what they said they did on the surface, Heather, was to deter sex trafficking. What it did in practice is run almost universally, you know, adult consenting sex workers off of a free internet, right? Mm. And, and, and then it drove advertisements and e-commerce around sex trafficking further underground. Mm -hmm. So it, it just didn't do any of the things that it said it would do. And in fact, many sex workers were warning of this long before mm -hmm. it was passed. When we heard it was coming, this was like, no, 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 this is a problem because it allowed them, it didn't allow them to screen clients. It didn't allow them to share bad date lists online, allow them to share, you know, experiences with, right. And so all of that, because essentially not to get too in the weeds, the previous legislation was, Heather, if you designed a website and then I come and use your website as a user and I do something illegal, you are not held accountable. Right, I right. am as the user. The flip yeah. was now, Heather, you design a website. If I do something illegal, this illegal thing on your website, you are held accountable. So then what do you think all the websites did? Oh, there is hi. no dating section. There is yep. no, you know, meeting up for sex section. And so yep. all of the places where they, so that's the super simple version, but hopefully that's helpful to understand what these, this legislation was doing. And then they, it was, there were all the also complications where like their banks were, accounts were being closed, PayPal was banning them. So you were seeing it across mm -hmm. the board because what they were saying they wanted to deter is again, the trafficking, but then any sort of sexual transaction mm -hmm. was swept up in Sounds that. Like and that, that was essentially yeah. the challenge. And so part of that is it's done intentionally going back to our earlier conversation. Why is it legal? 
to sell mm-hmm. something that it, or why is it illegal to sell something that it's legal to give away for free because we're supposed to live in a country that has separation of church and state so you can't come right out and say this violates my religious or spiritual sensibilities and so therefore i'm going to write a law against it that quite literally doesn't work and in fact in that same court case the the moral question was asked of which the judges shot it down and in a previous case because you know it's the case that worked their way up through the yep. courts on appeal yep. and all that and they tried to make that argument early on the judge was like no i don't buy the moral argument because we're not allowed to do that but they still ruled in their favor so they know they can't come right out and say here's why we don't like this thing but their way to get at it I'm, this is my long way of saying is that if we just make everyone think that anything related to sex is trafficking yeah. then it's always yes. swept up under this prostituting another frame yeah. and so that is sort of what happens and so how i explain it is they're not totally disconnected they're two separate issues on a continuum there is a spectrum right mm-hmm. but it looks different so i think you know one of the things i, I the, the series taken with liam neeson was like the worst thing to ever happen to to sex work and erotic labor because what people often think and sex trafficking for that matter is yeah. like there's someone hiding in a bush and yeah. you're probably familiar with this with sexual yeah. violence work there's yeah. someone hiding in a bush and they're yeah. going to jump out and kidnap you or harm rape you. stranger yeah. danger yeah. what's actually happening heather and we never see this in any of the sex trafficking work is it's someone you know it's a parent yeah. Yeah. right let's whether it's yeah. a mother father parent who has a child who then allows people to do things with that child for money or it's a partnership like someone you're married to who then allows certain things or does or or compels you to do that's actually how sex trafficking happens in practice but that's not the frame the frame is this other thing and so it's not and so one of the reasons why we are pushing is because in an effort to kind of quell sex trafficking and by association uncritical conflation sex work we actually are doing um victims of sex trafficking a disservice and in fact some of the most vocal advocates against sex trafficking are sex workers because they recognize what consent is and what it looks like because they recognize what it means to have agency um to the extent that we're not talking about capitalism and systems but under that right umbrella where as much agency as one can have right and so that has been the challenge is trying to get people to disentangle those two things i'll give you another concrete example of why this is a fraught relationship people will often say there's been many like busts in like um massage parlors Mm -hmm. many of them Mm -hmm. where um asian international um uh, immigrants may be working and they will say we did a bust this was a sex trafficking ring and we did a bust well then heather why is it at the end of that bust all the people who were allegedly supposed to be saved are turned around and deported yeah it doesn't make nothing about what's happening makes sense and so what i'm trying to do with a very complex issue is really kind of um, walk folks through so we can start asking some different and critical questions because what we will find is we're actually all on the same side but what we do is what what detractors do is they get people caught up in the sensation of it and so what I've been trying to do is just turn down the temperature when you hear sex work and erotic labor to not tense up to not clutch your pearls but just mm-hmm. enter in a curious space. Mm-hmm. And then we can start to actually disentangle some things. And you're like, you know what? This actually doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, precisely. <laughs> this exactly. is the problem. This is why we need to do this differently. Exactly. And and yet we haven't talked about it, right? And that's that's the other part that I think um, is the, the implications um, yes. of this work is that what does this mean for, for folks who work in student affairs? And I'm really curious, you know, what did you learn? Like, what did yeah. you learn about how many students are engaged? What did you learn about what they were learning about themselves yeah. through sex work? Yeah. Um, how many students are we talking about? Because that's the other part. It's like, oh, well, we don't really know. Well, we don't collect this information. We didn't even talk about it. So, yeah. So I will say the short of it is, is that we need a lot more quantitative data. Yeah. The challenge is because of the topic And so um, let me take a step back without getting too in the weeds. Our UK colleagues are way ahead of us Mm. on this topic. And there was a national sex works um, study slash survey that they did, which was brilliant that I've been trying to figure out how to replicate. But Mm. the size of our nation as a national study Mm. is very different than theirs. So like logistically, the amount of colleges and universities and the amount, sheer amount of students, it's just 
you know, exponential sort of scale. Yeah, like maybe we need to figure yeah. out how to do that. So that's something that I, is on my brain. I haven't given up on it, but I'm, I'm slowly trying to figure out what that looks like and how we go about that. But we need more quantitative data. There are only estimates. And I talked a little bit in the book about mm -hmm. like Sugar Baby University and like mm -hmm. Seeking's like project where they were reporting some numbers um, around what they felt like were students engaging, but it was all self-reported. The challenge mm -hmm. is they don't verify if people were actually students or not. So wow. any random person could sign up and say, I'm a student because that also yeah. sells, right? Wow. Being a student, being the, the co-ed, right? And so some people will say that they're a student, they may not actually. So there's really no way of knowing what right. the real number is. There are some UK numbers. They range anywhere between like the, at any given time of, over, you know, many years, like the 12 and like, you know, um, 12 and like 20, I've seen numbers like 12 and 30, 30 feels a little high to me, mm -hmm. but we don't know. It's inconclusive is what I will say. Um, but, but we know it is happening. Um, yes. and there was a table in the book and like, and when you look at some of the institutions, like for example, NYU is near the top in terms of where we suspect and probably because the cost of living of higher ed and the cost of living mm -hmm. in New York. Right. And so mm -hmm. there's some things that we can make some sort of assumptions. I think that, um, what I learned, and when I think about on the ground, right, so for, for people are listening to this, are like, this is all fascinating. What am I supposed to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is um, what we need to think about, and I don't, don't talk about this in the book. I talk about it briefly because it's reporting from an empirical piece, an article. I guess I should say not an empirical piece. The book is empirical. But we have to figure out what are things that impact, that potentially all students on our campus will benefit from, but that target college students, sex workers with like surgical precision, for example. Mm -hmm. There were some students who were saying like, for me to get HIV and STI testing on one of their campuses, it was like $100 every screen, every time. And so if we could find out a way to systemically allow free testing for students, yep. that is Once something- a Once a week. Right? Then it that is something that any student can take advantage of, but yep. targets, right? Sex workers in ways that allows helps, them to, yeah. to keep them safe. Of, our, of the seven in my study, two of the students were very clear that they only engaged in this work in episodic basis mm. when they were in a financial crunch. So what I tell the people who were like, we need students to stop this. And I'm like, and in my study, there were two who wanted to. And here's what they yeah. said they needed. They need emergency mm -hmm. grant programs, not yeah. loans, grants. Yeah. Hey, grants. I have to Money pay Money in your account I need, today. Right. Though food pantries, we start starting to see those more, right? When we mm -hmm. think about food insecurity broadly. So that is impacting some of these students. Um, and so those are the types of things would help, you know, those two students, but not all of them. Because then there was mm -hmm. one student in my study, for example, who was doing it because she didn't want her parents on the hook for her student uh -huh. loans. So she, they took, so she had about $40,000 in loans. They were willing to help her. And she said, no. That's why she turned to it. She's like, no, it's my debt. I'm going to pay for it. Mm. Um, there was, But then there was one person, Tiana, when she finished her first time, she was like, I finally had money. I actually felt less depressed. Imagine that. She engaged in sex work for the first time and was less depressed because she said, I have food money. I have yeah. bill money. I have Starbucks money. She's not even yeah. paying for school. She's just like, I need coffee. <laughs> right? And so... <laughs> yeah. So it's one of those things that I think like, what are the things that we can do? Then also visibility is mm -hmm. is, is a, is a mm -hmm. concern. There's some wonderful work to shout out the University of Rhode Island who's doing some really interesting work connected to some of my work, which was exciting, but also some things that, the, that they were just, their gut was telling them they should do. So for example, we have to increase visibility about the topic through conversations like this, yep. through inviting people to campus, um, because then what that signals to students who are engaging in that work is like, oh, there's an awareness. Yeah. that we might be on the way to developing a context where I can reveal myself. So brown bag lunches that talk yeah. about it from non-deficit perspective, if possible, and if it's aligned with the work of a particular office to bring someone in for a Heritage and Awareness Month or week or, mm -hmm. or speaker series. So, you know, because one of the things in the study, I'd ask the student, like, how could your institution have showed that they were supportive and she struggled? Yeah. Many of them yeah. did. Yeah. I rephrased the question. And I said, okay, um, and this particular student was a black woman. I was like, how did your institution at least attempt to, you know, show you that they were supportive? And she was like, oh, well, there was this staff member who did programming for black women. There was a few programs, there were student orgs. And I'm like, so I'm gonna ask you the question again, how mm -hmm. could your institution, right? And so <laughs> then the like light 
came on because they just assume it's not a place you're going to be welcome or supported in that space. Uh, but then she's like, well, really all of those things would be things yeah. that would have made me feel supported in this yeah. space. And so, you know, this idea I call the finding in that article, the impossibility of imagining, because mm -hmm. it's just not a place we could see ourselves there. So I think we have to figure out how do we reveal ourselves to them first, similar to yeah. what I did in the study. And that's through conversations, that's through programming, that's through advocacy. There's national organizations like SWAP, the Sex Worker Outreach Project. Mm -hmm. They have some, not every state has a state chapter, but some of their state chapters, their local city chapters, inviting them to table at an event because they do outreach, they have resources. So even if you feel like your institution isn't in a place where they're ready to commit resources to it, find the people that do have it yeah. and connect your students to them. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's a lot, right, we can do in that way. And then I think, you know, in terms of, you know, in our work, we're in student affairs theory to practice the theory. There are some student development type of considerations because one of the things I found in the book, in chapter five, I talk about in darkened consciousness. Yes. And essentially the short version is sex work operates as a consciousness raising phenomenon in their lives. And the ways in which they're making meaning of issues of power and oppression, survival and systems um, is well and beyond what I saw in most cases with most undergraduate uh -huh. students. And so, you know, what does it mean to have a public awareness and a public consciousness that this thing is bad or wrong, uh -huh. right, quote unquote, and to do it anyway? Right. So then I asked and we talked about that. They're like, well... Well, one, I don't care what, what people think, but that right and wrong as a binary is just not how they're understanding themselves developmentally, their choice making. It's about justice. It's about truth. It's about, you know, survival. Um, and so they're able to articulate with it with quite clarity. There was no like, oh, I'm not sure if I should be doing this. There was none of that. There was like, yeah. there was some of that before they started. Sure, but by the sure. time we're in the study, they're like, no, I I'm under no, I, there's no hesitation around my yeah. decision to do this. Yeah. Um, for some of them, it's like, I wish I didn't. For two of them, it was like, I would have liked to have done something else. But yeah. absent of having something else to do, I'm going to do this. And the others are like, oh, no, I'm doing this. And they're involved. They're leaders on campus. They're engaged mm -hmm. in their women's student center. They're in mm -hmm. sororities. They're, mm -hmm. you know, on our campus. And they're engaging in this type of labor to meet their needs. And so, mm -hmm. you know, there's a student development piece because, I mean, if we were to talk to them, I think it would blow apart everything we think we know about moral and cognitive development of college-age students. And so we need to pay attention to that. And yes, generally, I think we need to pay attention to just how work is impacting learning and how learning impacts work. Not just sex work and erotic labor, but generally. Um, yeah. I'm blanking on his name. I want to say it's maybe Patrick Rossman. It was a scholar who graduated at, from University of Iowa. Who, who talks about who talks about student work on campus. Yes. Compared to, it, yes. Yeah. Rossman. Yes. Rossman is the last name. Um, wonderful. I actually chatted with him when I was writing the book because I'm like, I was looking for people who did stuff around work and students. And I shared about the project and we had this beautiful conversation and I'm like, we need more of your work and we need more people doing your work. And for people like me, it would have been instructive. And so my project contributes to that as one type of work and how it is impacting student experience and learning. But to your point, Heather, maybe it's a future student affairs now episode, but how are we at, what are students doing on campus for work? Why does that matter to their learning and development? Right. And what do we need to be doing? Yeah. Cause we know they're going to have to work. They're going to have right. to continue to work. They're we know a little bit. And where yeah. they work and who they work for potentially yeah. matters. Right. I mean, I think his, yeah. his study really talks about the, the campus environment and supporting your academic goals and you know Absolutely. you're working for somebody who understands that like oh I can't make it to work today because I have a test Correct. versus Correct. like uh, off campus so yeah that's a really interesting I mean I think the broader conversation about labor in general and student labor yes. and the kind of ways that we we don't compensate student labor labor student yes. activist very, labor very very uh, there's yep. so many interesting um pieces there. And you knew I was going to pick up on this because as I do work in a women and gender equity center, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I think that I've read this book through the, through the lens on multiple levels, right. I, I yeah. read it through the lens of a scholar who, who is really interested in your methods and narrative yeah. inquiry was my dissertation methodology yeah. also. Um, and then I was also really interested. I was like, hey, okay, so now what do I do within my yeah. space? And and also I recognize the ways in which women's centers have often replicated um, a very specific type of 
feminism and you you kind of unpacked that like whether yeah. it's radical feminism or sex positive feminism or yep. creating these spaces where people feel judged you know and so yep. the white the white woman feminist kind of yep yep mentality what are your suggestions for me or other colleagues who work in those spaces and obviously i'm a white cis woman right so yeah there's also a, a complex complexity there yeah, there is. I mean, and I think, you know, that was really, so in the, in the last chapter of the book, right, we were alluding to is I really wanted to get back to sort of theory and paradigm. Yeah. And how does that inform how we think about our work? And I really love the work of gender sexuality centers and, and um, women's student centers, women and gender student centers, mm-hmm. um, because I think there's it's, it's ripe for some of this dialogue to take yeah. place because there's an awareness on some level. And so we know you know, early on, there was the, you know, anti-pornography sort of yes. feminist, there were the pro-pornography yeah. feminist, and there was the um, radical feminist, and there was the sex rad, right, feminism. And mm-hmm. so I was, what I was trying to do in the book is like disentangle that all of these folks had a very different position um, on uh, sex work and why that might matter. And so I think what what I was trying to do is really bring in these perspectives. And I think was the thread throughout the book of multiple minoritized groups. Yes. Yeah. Right. So it's not even just enough to say that I'm a sex radical feminist, which yeah. of the, of the camps was, would be the closest to uh, uh, aligned to those of us that are doing sex work and erotic labor work yeah. from an equity and justice perspective, yeah. but that we have to go a step further. So what I was offering was like, how do we center sort of an darkened queer ecstasy as our frame? And I'm yeah. pulling from Jen- Jennifer Nash. How do we, mm-hmm. instead of looking at these sort of sexual images, experiences and narratives from a place of um, injury, Mm-hmm. or an injured reading I think is what I said as opposed to a place of sort of possibility stepping out of the here and now and so I think that what we we need to do is to just sort of complicate um, our understandings of sex generally and so I, I talk a little bit about this idea of what does it mean to have a radical erotic politic for higher yes yeah right and I think Thank what you. I was what I was su- suggesting is this um for lack of a better phrase and for time I is bad at sex just generally yes. and what I mean by that is we have three ways we, that we address it <laughs> yes it's like you know don't sexually assault someone if you must have sex like here are prophylactics and <laughs> like you know here's your sexual health go to the health center yeah. right yeah. like those are the primary ways like that we acknowledge that many of us, not all of us, are sexual beings in the way that we might think about that most simply. And so what I was just simply trying to argue was going back to labor and going back to the body is that the academy is only really concerned with the life of the mind, right? And we know that in student affairs because we often talk about the age old which is there's some truth to it. And we also sensationalize and like this tension between us and academic affairs. So yes. we know that that exists. The idea that we are at a college university and the academic affairs are supreme because we are supposed to be concerned with our brains, with learning, with getting degrees, with generating knowledge. And the student affairs were like, yes, and that looks different. And there are multiple ways to do that. Yeah. What I'm simply saying is that same challenge of being concerned with the life of the mind means we don't invite our body mm to be comfortably a part of the conversation in higher ed. And so I often talk about teaching to transgress by Bill mm-hmm. Hooks. We love teaching to transgress. And everyone yeah. always skips over her chapter on the erotic. And that's interesting to me. Yeah. And she talked about it in a lot of different ways. So in a you know practical sense, she talked about how teaching for the first time when she had to use the bathroom she didn't know what to do because no one ever told her you, that you needed to tend to your body in the space because we just didn't. I do some body pedagogy stuff with students sometime in yeah. class and I have them close their eyes and I ask them to just attend to, are they too hot or too cold and why? Yeah. Are you hungry or full? Um, you know, do you need to you're go tired. to the bathroom? Like, yeah. what's, do you have an injury or a chronic illness that you're dealing with that we can't see, but you're in pain right now and you just numb mm-hmm. it and dull it because you know, when you come in here, mm-hmm. you got to, fo- and so when we think about it in that way, then we know the erotic is also connected to the body. So it also gets mm-hmm. disconnected from our conversations and our consciousness around what it is that we bring to the room. So I'm not saying we have to come and be sexual with each other. I'm not saying we have to be explicit in our conversation with each other, but how do we, and I hate to use this phrase as someone who tried to queer that chapter, how do we normalize the erotic in our bodies? 
yeah. as part of when I come here, I bring everything with me. And we see this in, in, with a lot of disability scholars and discredit, yeah. the idea of how the, the higher is not kind to the body. So when I'm, so that's the, my simple way of saying, and I talk about sort of refusals and embraces and get into the granularity. But generally what I'm saying is we have to invite our bodies into our work. We have to not leave them at the door. We don't just walk into our offices and our uh, classrooms as big brains, but we're whole people. But what the problem is, is the first thing that's on the chopping block is the body, which includes an awareness of our physiology, an awareness of our erotic, an awareness of, you know, I think about, you know, again, same thing with like, let's say there's someone who's pregnant. Yes. Right. We, we we may see that, but we're not supposed to talk about it or notice it or, yeah. or suggest that so, that a pregnant body maybe has different needs mm-hmm. while they're carrying a child. Right. And so it's, there's all these ways that we don't allow bodies to be mm-hmm. bodies mm-hmm. in higher ed and student mm-hmm. affairs. And so what I'm saying is that we need a radical erotic politic. And what I'm really saying is we got to allow the body to be a part of the conversation of our work, which also yeah. connects to labor, which also, so there's all these like connections. Interconnections, um, yeah. Read the book. That's the high, yeah. the high point. You got to read the book to get the full uh, You do. I, I cannot <laughs> speak more highly. And I and I think the, the piece for me when I was thinking about this idea of the body connected is also we learn through our bodies as well as through our minds, right? So yes, to disconnect yes, yes. embodied pedagogies, um, yes, you know, like that the process of moving our bodies, we learn something about. So I, I think yes. that's the kind of full- Very good, Heather, absolutely, too. absolutely. You're um, 100% right. TJ, I am so grateful for you and for this conversation. And I could talk yeah. to you about this all day. I can't wait to see you at ACPA <laughs> so we can have another chat about yes. it. Yes. Yes. Uh, but I do think your conversation about labor is a really interesting and student labor in particular. So yeah, yeah. I this will not be the last time you come on yeah. student affairs now. Um, I know your other episode on labor acknowledgements also picks yeah. up on this theme, right? And so yeah. there's some really, um, some yeah. really nice through lines there. So this is our final thought. You know, yeah, what is yeah. your, what are you thinking about troubling, pondering? It could have to do with what we just discussed, um, but yeah. love to kind of hear that final comment. Absolutely. So I'm, you know, one of, there's a few things that I'm thinking about. I'm really interested in who and what was missing from this study. So as yeah. much as I loved it and thought it was full and robust, mm-hmm. you know, I was curious, where are the black, gay and or queer men? Mm. I noticed mm that and I wondered about that mm-hmm. then the pandemic came and yeah. there was the only fans boom so I'm actually mm-hmm. working with a scholar right now and we're looking at the experiences of black gay and queer men and their use mm-hmm. of app-based content creation mm-hmm. and we're not using the phrase sex work because what we found Heather is App-based. people may engage in behaviors that I or we identify as sex mm-hmm. work and erotic labor and they may not identify as sex workers themselves. And I think in the conversation you had with Chris and Steven around student activists, mm-hmm. we found that same thing. You might recall, yes. there are some people who engage, students who engage in activism, but don't identify as activists. So yeah. it got me thinking, do we have to be careful about the words that we yeah. use? And irrespective of if you identify that way, if you so we're, we're doing a study that's not even asking uh if you identify as a sex worker but do you use OnlyFans just for fans grinder connect pal as a way to make money and yeah. then we can ask the question how do you understand yourself as a sex worker or not what do you think about so we're interested yeah. so we're interested in the, like the e- virtual space right now with yeah. college students we're interested in language and terminology um and then there's this 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 broader piece, I think, around what does sort of the impact on the ground look like mm-hmm. for students. And so I'm trying to think about what is the next phase, issues around policy. I'm doing a study uh, mm-hmm. looking at 255 colleges and universities and their policies on sex work and erotic labor. Spoiler alert, of the 255, not one had a policy, but there was a lot of interesting things about the ways institutions in their policy language, particularly their codes of conduct language, talk about this topic. Yeah. So maybe that's yeah. the next episode is looking at policies and how that might matter and what we're finding. And so I'm really interested in, in those things. Um, and then finally, I'm going to be advancing this work in different modalities. So that's something that's looked forward to. So with the stories that you read, Heather, I've had them all illustrated, all the memoirs. Oh, my god! So now we have images to tell the story alongside. And so I'm in the process of figuring out how do we share those? Do we do a, a comic or a graphic novel? 
type thing that takes those seven stories with some additional news stories and content for folks who who want to be able to be impacted in that way. And so it's not the end of the Sex Work on Campus project. I got a couple tricks up my sleeve yet, but um, so th that's where we're headed and, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Well, thank you so much for your contributions to this to this particular conversation, but to this broader space. I think throughout the book, you talk about rendering visible a group of yeah. students whose experiences have existed for, you know, on the margins of the margins of the margins, right? And yeah. so I think if we can just keep illuminating, making the invisible visible to the extent that students want it to be, right? Want like to. there's a whole yep. choice piece there. Um, yeah. I feel like this is just a treasure and I'm so grateful for your time and for this book and for having the opportunity thank to read you. it. Thank you so, for thank reading you. it. Thanks for the invitation, Heather. Of course, of course. Um, also just want to send quick gratitude to the labor of our incredible producer, Nat Ambrosi. She does incredible behind the scenes things to make us look and sound great. So thank you so much for all that you do. And also thank you to our episode sponsors, Rutledge, Taylor and Francis is the world's leading academic publisher in education. They publish a wide range of books, journals, and other resources for practitioners, faculty, administrators, and researchers. Uh, Rutledge welcomes Stylus Publishing, a former uh, sponsor of Student Affairs Now, to the publishing platform and are, in, are super thrilled to enrich their offerings in higher education, teaching, student affairs, professional development, assessment, and more. Uh, and we are so grateful for their support of Student Affairs Now. You can view their complete catalog um, under www.rutledge.com education. So to all of our listeners, if you're tuning in today, haven't already subscribed to our weekly newsletter, please take a moment to enter your email on our website, studentaffairsnow.com, and you can stay in the loop with latest episodes delivered to your inbox each Wednesday. And while you're there, you should definitely check out our growing archives. I think we're at 180 some plus episodes now. Uh, once again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to everybody who's watching and listening. Let's make it a great week.